Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. So Hebrews chapter 4, reading verses 8 through 13. The writer says, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So notice the the paradox here. We're going to work hard. We're going to strive so that we may rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And the verse that I'm drawing our attention to this morning, verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and is discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I thank you for your word. And as we take these next few moments of time to talk about the power of the word of God, I just pray that the anointing of the Holy Spirit would be here present and active and alive among us in a way that brings stunning amounts of your glory to the forefront of our lives to show us to rip the bandages off our eyes, the blindness that our world imposes upon us, and that we could see the reality of your glory today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The big idea, the big picture that I want us to see this morning is that God and His Word are one. They are indivisible. Eugene Peterson wrote that in the Christian tradition, spirit and word are organically connected. They are not simply related or complementary. They are aspects of the same thing. Years ago, I had a next door neighbor that was moving. And he had in his house a grandfather clock, one of those really neat old grandfather clocks and the person he was selling his house to who would become my new neighbor they were having difficulties they were getting into it a lot of disagreements about the house sale and so he came over to my house one day and he said I've got this grandfather clock I don't want to take it with me He said it actually came with the house. I think the clock was probably, best I could tell, probably from the early 1980s. He said it's an expensive clock, and it was. To buy it new, the same clock, would have been about $3,000. It's about a $3,000 grandfather clock. He said, I don't want to take it with me. I also don't want the man buying the house to get it. He said, I'll sell it to you for $50. I said, sold. Uh, I didn't know if I wanted to keep it. I just figured if I didn't keep it, I could resell it and make money. Uh, But turns out we did keep it, and it would chime on the quarter hour 
Uh, at 15 after it would play a quarter of a song and at 30 after it would play half the song and at 45 it would play three quarters of the song and at the top of the hour it would play the entire song and then it would gong the number of hours that it was. So at 10 o'clock at night it would be these 10 loud chimes that I just felt rattled the house. And if I went to bed at say 10.30 I could not go to sleep until 11 o'clock because I would lay there in anticipation of this dreaded, blasted grandfather clock, and I hated that thing. <laughs> and I would have to wait till it went off before I could go to sleep. And this went on for a while, and it just, it was a thorn in my flesh. And then one day, I was sitting in my recliner, and the recliner was right in front of the clock. And I had been reading for quite a while, and all of a sudden I realized, and I thought, you know what? That clock's broken. It's not going off. It hasn't went off the whole time I've been sitting in this chair. So I waited till the next quarter hour, and that quarter hour, there it went. It went off. And I realized I got used to it. They call this sensory adaptation. We get used to almost anything if it's there long enough. Eventually, I didn't notice the clock at all, and eventually we got rid of the clock, and when we got rid of the clock, then the silence bothered me. I remember it was like, it, I, where, where's, that, where's that chime at? People who live next to railroad tracks, they don't hear the train eventually. You just, it's just part of your life. We lived on the highway, that same house for years, the house on a two-lane highway were cars. It was the main thoroughfare in and out of the town and cars would go by 55, 60, 70 miles an hour in front of our house and the sound of that traffic. When we moved from there and it was, we moved to somewhere where that wasn't, the, the silence bothered me. I didn't realize that I got used to the highway noise. Sensory adaptation. This happens to us spiritually as well. The late Clyde Kilby, who was a famous English professor at Wheaton College in Illinois, said, one of the greatest tragedies of the fall of man is that we get tired of familiar glories. I was sitting in a church service five, four or five years ago. A friend of mine was preaching and he was opening up the sermon text and he read the text and the text said, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks cedars. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. And as he read that, I stood and turned and looked at the congregation and I thought, you know, I'm just sure somebody there was checking their email or their Facebook feed. Somebody else was thinking about work tomorrow. Nothing against that church. It's every church, including ours. It's people. And I stood there and I thought, oh my goodness, why are we not standing in awe? Why is there not a holy hush in this place? We're hearing the literal, actual words of God about God, about what His voice does. Well, we're not because we're not weeping, we're not rejoicing, we're not standing in awe at these glorious truths because we've heard it a thousand times. We have developed sensory adaptation for the glories of God. It's one of the things that I, I, I caution people about with 
familiar verses. John 3.16, for example. People hold it up at ball games. People have heard it so many times that they fail to stop and say, okay, what does this actually mean? What is this saying? What does this glorious truth actually mean for my life? And so we have to challenge ourselves to see the glory of God again for the first time, hear and feel the awesome wonder and splendor and majesty of God's glory and God's might. Imagine taking a class where the assignment is to write about your ideas about the knowledge of God. Maybe you would write about concepts and ideas that you learned from the Bible, because if you don't, what are you going to write about God that you don't know from Scripture? Nearly everything we know about God, His nature, His attributes, even His very existence comes from the Holy Bible. Without Scripture, we would not have an accurate picture of who God is, what He is capable of, or whether He is even good on a fundamental level. You could not have the Bible and walk outside and look at the glory of creation and say, there must have been an intelligent design behind this. There must be a deity. You wouldn't know if that deity was good. It's only through Scripture that we know that God is good. That is not to say that the Bible is our only witness of the existence of God. Even without the Bible, we can and people do believe that a higher power exists. There's something intangible and yet undeniable within our soul that is telling us that there is a grand architect of the universe. The psalmist wrote, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Creation calls for the belief in the existence of a Creator. People are naturally compelled to worship something. We commit idolatry by default. We are born carnal and weak, and it only gets worse from there. And we are compelled to give our glory to another because there is this longing in the heart of people to embrace a cause greater than ourselves. However, creation and the instincts within our soul can only carry us so far in our revelation with God. We need something solid and concrete to guide us and by the grace of God, He gave it to us in a book. Now, God does speak through His Spirit. I'm not saying the only way that God speaks is to us is through, his, through the Scriptures. God does speak to us through His Spirit. Spirit-filled people, we hear His voice speak to our hearts. Uh, but there have also been times I thought I heard His voice, but I really was unsure whether it was His voice or was it my own thoughts. How do you know? It's like, you don't always know. There are times still that it's like, was that, was that the voice of God or, or was that my own human intuition? Uh, there have been times where I've felt very definitively that I did know. It's not always ambiguous. There have been times that I was confident this came from God. I remember on a Thursday evening many years ago, the Lord spoke to me on a Thursday night and said, you're going to, do, you're going to be preaching the radio broadcast on Saturday morning, get ready. I'd done the broadcast before, but it had done, been a long time since I'd done it. But I was, without a doubt, I had heard from God uh, that this is, this is the direction we're going to go. And a day and a half later, I was sitting in that radio booth um, preaching on the radio that morning. Um, but there have also been times, there was a Christmas Eve service where I thought the Lord spoke specifically to me about an event that would happen within a specified period of time. That time period was very specific. 
And it did not happen. It didn't happen at all. And my human intuition created an idea in my mind, and I mistook it for the voice of God. And it, what that event left me with was an awareness of my capacity for human error. And this is where the Bible rescues us. The Word of God is supreme. It provides truth that is eternal and unwavering. It does not conform to us or to our way of thinking. The Bible is God-breathed, and it is not open to my private interpretation. And with this understanding comes a great amount of joy and hope. I heard a preacher say this week, if you want to know what a church believes, don't ask a member in the church. Go to their official statement of faith, their official confession of faith. He said, because people in churches believe all kinds of things that are not right. It's like, what, it's not what do you believe individually, it's what do we believe as a whole. This is where the safety comes in. So we read. We read Holy Scripture. We read primarily for our belief about God comes from Scripture. We read other books, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute, but we read. We should be readers. Several years ago, I observed a man standing outside uh, I was in my early 20s. I managed at a restaurant. We had a morning maintenance man uh, who would really kind of clean the parking lot, do some stocking work and things like that. Usually they worked three or four hours a day. They were part-time. And I had told him, um, go out and put this on our marquee sign. I hadn't wrote it down. I just said, just put this on our marquee. And I had done this before with different maintenance men, just tell them, you know, it's something really simple, buy one, get one free, whatever. And I saw him standing outside, he had the box of letters just staring at it, and I went out there, and um, he looked at me and he said, uh, he said, would you mind laying these letters out for me, uh, how they should go? And I knew this man's background very well, I knew his family very well, and I knew how he was raised and his upbringing, and my heart broke it broke because I realize this man can't read, which means he can't spell. He does not know how. He is illiterate. He does not know how to do what I told him to do. I didn't embarrass him. I said, absolutely. And I pulled out all the letters and I laid them out on the ground. I said, if you'll just put them in order like this, I said, we'll be good. But I considered how difficult his life must be, never being able to experience the joy and fulfillment that can come from reading. Reading, I would say, is fundamental to success in life, but I've known some very successful people, two I can think of in particular now, one very successful in business, in his career, made a lot of money, who told me, he said, he told me this personally, he said, I think the last book I read was Old Yeller in grade, in grade school. So I think that's the last time I read a book. Okay. Uh, I know a pastor that doesn't have a book in his library. Um, his desk has a Bible and a telephone and pictures on the wall, and that's it. And I don't know of a pastor that I would consider has been as successful as this pastor. Um, so I, I guess there are exceptions to every rule. Uh, but I would still say that those men miss some really key things in life by not being readers, because it allows us to pull back the curtain and gaze into the minds of people we admire. 
You may never meet all of your heroes, but you can come to know them through their writings. Remember years ago, and this is not a political statement in any way, but years ago I read uh, both of George W. Bush's books. And I thought to myself, I thought, um, you know, here's a man that I'll never get to meet, which turned out to not be true. I met George W. Bush, and I shook his hand and said, Mr. President, it's an honor to meet you. And he shook my hand and said, what's going on, dude? And uh, I, didn't, I had no comeback for that. I didn't know what to say. I was not expecting George W. to say, what's going on, dude? Uh, so that was, uh, but of course, I didn't get a conversation with him. It was a handshake. But reading his books, I felt like I, I got in his mind, like I kind of know this person because of something that they, they wrote. The power of old books is the preservations of the mind of the people who wrote them. We read authors who have been in the grave for centuries, especially in Scripture. I'm, I do believe that I will meet King David in person. Like I, I believe that. I hope you do too. I will meet David in the Bible in person and shake his hand and get to talk to him. I, I believe that. Um, I believe I'll get to meet Paul. But in this life, they've been dead for a very long time. Paul's been dead for 2,000 years. David's been dead for 3,000 years. But we can know them through their writings. If the essence of leadership is influence, then some of the greatest leaders are people we have never met who influences through their writings. How many have been transformed, affected by a book by somebody who's dead, but it's like their voice still lives? This is why, um, you know, at some point in, in my life, I, I hope to do a lot more writing uh, because I, I think about men who I've known who have influenced me but they never wrote anything, and their influence uh, really dies with their generation. And this is why writing is, is so important, and why so many preachers write. Uh, really, in the, up until the last hundred years or so, it, this is what preachers did. They wrote their sermons, and their books were their sermons, and their sermons were their books. And this is how it's usually been done. C.S. Lewis said, It is a good rule after reading a new book never to allow yourself another new one until you have read an old one in between. And if that is too much for you, Lewis said, you should at least read one old book to every three new ones. So we, we go to the bookstore, and I, I go to Barnes & Noble. I usually don't buy anything, um, but I will go there and just kind of peruse the, the books. And, and you look at this genre of Christian literature whatever it's called in the bookstore, there's this Christian section, and there's a wide range of subjects, topics, subgenres, uh, fictional love stories, financial guides, diet and exercise plans, uh, leadership, and say, okay, we can all be helped by books written by Christian authors when based upon a biblical model. Um, I, I read some of these financial guides and say, I know you say that you're Christian and you're selling your book from a Christian standpoint, um, but I think your math's wrong. It's like it doesn't automatically make it a good book. Uh, but the reason why is these writers are not infallible. So we read everything. We listen to everything with a skeptical eye, and we should. Like the only time my, my guard's not up is when I'm reading Scripture. Anything else I read, anything else I listen to, I'm aware that that person is not infallible. They're going to say something that probably isn't right. 
The author may be inspired. The author may even be anointed. But the ideas that they communicate, including ideas from this pulpit, are not infallible. Like, my ideas that I preach are infallible to the extent that they are Bible ideas. It is impossible to separate influence from the writer's pen. This is why we're careful with what we read or what we listen to, because things that get into our minds, they influence us. The life of the reader is changed by the words that we read and we internalize. Now, the style may be poetic, it may be a story, but regardless of how the form of the words take, we are shaped by what we read, by what we ingest, whether regardless of what type of media it is, we are shaped by this. Ideology and theology travel on the wings of paragraphs and words and sentences. The Bible is the Spirit of God in writing. This unique quality of Scripture is what makes the Bible infallible. Like We stand here today with a high view of Scripture saying that Scripture is infallible. Now, interpretations of Scripture are not infallible. There's all kinds of crazy ideas out there um, about, about the Bible. But the text itself, properly understood, properly interpreted, is infallible. The Apostle Paul said, and we'll get to this scripture in our sermon series, that all scripture is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, it's God-breathed. It's the breath of God. This gives us insight into the relationship. It's what I started with, with Eugene Peterson's quote, the relationship between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. When the Spirit of God was given in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This idea that it comes in, the idea that the Spirit comes in like a wind, we've talked before about John 3, Jesus comparing the Spirit of God to the wind. The wind blows where it wishes, and you don't hear its sound, you can't tell where it comes and where it goes, it's just the wind is free, and He's comparing the Holy Spirit to this. The word that if you're John writing in the Greek or you're Luke writing in the book of Acts about the Spirit and you're writing in, in the Greek language, the word they would use would be the word panephma. That's how they would say it. They would say panephma. We don't say it that way. We would say pneuma. Uh, we, would, we would make the P silent. We would take that invisible F in that word and pull it out and we would say it's pneuma, like a pneumatic powered tool, something that is powered by air or wind, the blast of air. And this was this exact word. I mean, they were writing those letters in Greek talking about the Holy Spirit. And we just grabbed that Greek word and said, that means a blast of air, a breath of wind. So we're going to take that and apply it to pneumatic powered tools. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it is or where it comes from or where it goes. Jesus said, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The fundamental nature of God is that He is Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell upon people with the promise that His presence is for everyone in Acts 2.39. His Spirit moving is also upon men what produced the Bible. 
It is the Holy Spirit in a book. That's what you possess when you read the Bible. You have the Holy Spirit in words. God-breathed words that are as transformative as the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are inseparable. They are one. This idea of the oneness of the Spirit and the Word of God is no more explicit than in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Go down to verse 14. The, the Word was made manifest. It dwelt among us in flesh. It's this idea of Word and Spirit. Jesus is the ultimate Word of God. So it's just all this idea that all this comes together as one. Peter wrote, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. This is cornerstone. This is fundamental about understanding the Bible. You don't get to interpret the Bible to mean what you think it should mean. All theology, all God ideas is done within the community of believers. I've had some thoughts before reading Scripture, and I thought, I think it's saying that, and I could find no fidelity, no consensus in the community of believers anywhere in history where anyone said it meant that. And my first response to that is, I'm wrong in my thinking. And that closes the, the, the idea, that closes the conversation for me. I am not going to get, you are not going to get some private revelation about Scripture. And that is, is like, if you're looking in this book for something new, you're reading it with the wrong angle. What we do is we go back to the well and we see glorious truths over and over and over again. It doesn't mean that there can't be new angles or attributes or ideas that you've never seen before. But believe me, somebody, somebody in the church has seen these ideas before. The Holy Spirit moved and produced the Bible through the pen and parchment of holy men. Jesus said, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. His Word is the vehicle through which His Spirit travels. The Word of God is indistinguishable and intertwined with the Spirit of God. This is why the Bible is supreme over all other writings. It has intrinsic value built into its origin. It is God Himself inside a book. Everything that the Bible declares is true and right and just, and anything that is ever spoken or has ever been written that is to be considered true must align with Holy Scripture, if we are to consider it truth. It is a book full of inexhaustible revelation. We spend a lifetime reading the same Scriptures repeatedly, and we never exhaust the revelation of the Scriptures declaring the glory of God. There is no limit to the depth and the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. We know the scriptures are true because our obedience to them is authenticated by a life that is full of joy. We read the Bible and we obey the Bible and our life works. We read the Bible and disobey the Bible and our life becomes a train wreck. The proof is in the pudding. It works. It's a recipe that works every single time. And as we see this, they begin to earn our trust. The Savior that we read about in the Bible is the same God that we encounter in prayer and in our daily walk. We read the story of redemption and it harmonizes with the story of our own redemption. 
His faithfulness through Scripture is consistent with His faithfulness to us. The Word of God is alive, it is self-revealing, and it is self-authenticating. So several years ago, I enrolled in a, a seminary course at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. And until I took that course, I had not distinguished between the supremacy of the Scriptures and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. I believed in the supremacy of Scriptures, but it was this idea of the sufficiency of the Scripture uh, that I just I had not thought about until uh, two professors, John Babbler and Frank Catanzaro, uh, taught this class together, and they drove home the point that the Scriptures are not only supreme, they're also sufficient for everything in life. So I expected the class to teach us how to counsel people using biblical principles. It's what you'd think in a counseling class at a seminary. Instead, they taught us how to use the Bible to address people's problems directly, not just principles, but the, actually, the actual text of Scripture to apply it to people's lives. The expectation these two men had of the Scriptures was inspirational. They gave little credence to secular psychology. I can't remember about both of them. I know at least one was a licensed clinical secular psychologist, um, but they didn't have a lot of confidence in that. Uh, they taught that it was the Bible that could address every problem we encounter in the counseling session. Now, let me put a caveat on that. I believe that. I just don't believe that everybody is qualified to use that to counsel people's problems. I don't think every preacher, every pastor is qualified to do that. Um, <clears throat> there are some things I would talk to people about, but there are some things if someone came to me and said, I'm dealing with um, this trauma or this past hurt or this abuse that happened in childhood and it's causing these dysfunctions to uh, manifest themselves in my present life. Uh, you're a preacher, can you help counsel through the scriptures through this? And my answer would be no. I won't. Um, <clears throat> I think the Bible is sufficient. I think there's somebody out there that can do that. It's just not me. Um, just because you're a preacher doesn't mean you're qualified to do all those things. So I, I do believe that uh, in men and women both being qualified counselors who are trained to deal in these areas. And I am not. And I mean, you're dealing with people's lives here. Just because you can exegete Scripture doesn't mean that you're a good counselor. Um, so it doesn't mean that you don't give pastoral advice. It doesn't mean that you pray. That you, but ongoing, true, what we would call counseling or therapy, there are people there who that's their calling, and that is their, that is their area of expertise. What I agree with Babbler and Catanzaro on is that there are Christian counselors, certified, licensed, like to say you're a counselor, uh, it's different state by state. There are some states where a pastor could hang a shingle in his office and say, I'm a counselor. There's other states that would probably put you in jail. Uh, Texas is pretty strict about that. Um, so, so, you know, we're not giving professional counseling here. You have to be a, a licensed counselor with the state to do that. Now, I believe that there are counselors who do that who can use biblical counseling to apply to the need in the situation. So I'm not saying that everybody who has every horrendous problem can sim simply sit down with a preacher and go through the book and, and, and be fixed. Uh, some of these areas take a lot of time and expertise to address. But Catanzaro posed to the class many times the following question, and this was his question. 
He would ask, what is the intrinsic deficiency of Scripture that makes us turn to other sources to find the answer to life's problems? He taught us that when counseling people, we should listen for unbiblical thinking and counter it with biblical truth. And these two men had such a respect and faith in Scripture that a passion was generated in me not so much to counsel people as it was to communicate to the rest of the world the relevancy of the Bible in our culture, that the Bible is relevant and it is sufficient. Now, one of the ideas that came out of, script, out of the Reformation was uh, the idea of sola scriptura, or by scripture alone. That, and some people took this to be like, we're only going to read the Bible and not read anything else. Well, that's not what they meant, and that's not what we, what we teach. What we teach is that the Bible alone is the sole and ultimate authority for everything in life. That is the logical conclusion of biblical sufficiency. These men were not teaching biblical exclusivity, but rather that the Bible presents to us through a variety of literary forms the direction needed for our understanding of what God is doing in our lives. Because if we believe that the Bible is infallible and supreme and sufficient, then we also understand that the form that the Bible comes to us in is infallible and supreme and sufficient. So the Bible is presented, and we're talking about this a lot in our Wednesday evening Bible studies, that the Bible is presented to us as one big story. It's one grand narrative that tells one story through many other smaller stories about the beauty of creation, the tragic introduction of sin and its destructive power, and the winding road of redemption. And so these stories are told in the context of king's palaces and prison cells. It's told through the lives of fishermen and prophets. The characters of Scripture are unassuming men and women. They're always in the minority. They're always men and women whose lives play out in the Bible for the sake of our salvation. And the inevitable conclusion of this redemptive story is that Jesus Christ will be victorious. He will rule and reign. And the final verdict will be in favor of the people of God. And the triumph of God's sovereign will is summed up in our Savior's words on the cross when He cries out, hand stretched on a cross, it is finished. This story, however, does not end at the cross. The book of Acts tells the story of the early church. So this is what Acts is. You read the book of Acts, it's the story of the early church. I don't think at all it's a manual of how to do church always. It's, this is how the church played out naturally in the lives of men and women who were believers, who were spirit-filled. This is the inauguration of the, the, the church age, and this is how it played out in their culture. We can take away things, but it's not for us to try to duplicate exactly what that church looked like. The book of Acts tells the story of victories. It doesn't shy away from struggles and defeats. It doesn't shy away from judgment. Man and wife walk in and lie to the preacher, and God strikes both of them dead because they lied about money. You know, this, this is God's judgment in the book of Acts. It's not shying away from the fact that there were hypocrites right off the bat in the early church. So when, when we read the Bible as a story, what we do is we allow ourselves to become immersed in the story. 
Have you ever read in the Bible and you start identifying with characters uh, in Scripture? You start sympathizing with their struggles because you're, you're like, yeah, I've, I've been there. Like, I get where they're coming from. I've felt that. Like, that's the idea is that they were men and women just like us. They were walking by faith. None of those characters in the Bible had the privilege of foresight to see how their story would end. They had no idea how their story would end. You read about Esther and the bravery that Esther takes in Scripture. Esther doesn't know how her story is going to end. We do, but Esther is just living it out in, in real time. They're, they're ordinary, fallible, imperfect people in Scripture. Now, there is this, there's this ebb and flow about the Bible that I find comforting. And that is that over here it's a story, and over here it's a poem, and over here it's a song, and you have different authors and your, your different time periods, and um, it's not packaged. It's not systematic. The story of redemption, it kind of meanders like a river through a variety of cultures, languages, genres, uh, not all the books in the Bible are written like a story. The Psalms that we read every Sunday, they're songs and they're poetry. The epistles are letters written to churches and individuals. Uh, in the book where the primary form is not a story, the text that we're reading in the Psalms, in, in the letters that Paul writes, they still come together to provide another piece of the puzzle to the big story, the grand story of what God is doing in this world. Now, I want to talk about how, like, how do we read the Bible? I think this is so important. I know I'm being very, um, kind of, I know this is different than what we normally do, just kind of working through verse by verse, but um, I, I want us to understand what the Bible is and how to read the Bible. It's of fundamental importance if you're going to arrive at a correct and well-rounded understanding of what the text reveals. So the process of reading the correct meaning of the text, and I don't use words like this often in sermons, but I want us to know this is not something that preachers do. This is something that all believers do. Whether or not you ever use the word or have heard the word, you do this. You, you, you take this, what we call exegesis. Let's just think about extracting the meaning from the text. We have a text and we're extracting the meaning. What does this verse mean? Not what does it mean to me. What does the verse actually mean? We can talk about how it applies to me later, but if I'm reading the Bible, what is the text saying in its original format, in its original context? So I want to read what Eugene Peterson, who is probably my, my favorite author, I, don't, I quote him sometimes, but Eugene Peterson has personally been more helpful to me than probably any other writer. And this is what Peterson says, that this pulling the meaning out of the text introduces another dimension into, into our relation to the text. The text as a story carries us along we are in on something larger than ourselves. We let the story take us where the story wants to take us. But this is focused attention. This is asking questions. This is sorting through possible meanings. Now here's, I, I think this is really important because I, I get pushback on this, uh, especially where uh, the emphasis of the Holy Spirit in a church, the more the emphasis of the Holy Spirit is in a church, the more pushback you'll get on what I'm getting ready to read. 
this unpacking, this revealing of the meaning of the text, Peterson says, is rigorous, disciplined, intellectual work. It rarely feels spiritual. And that is true. You're not, you're not reading a text and saying, Lord, reveal to me what this text means. Show me something in this text that no one else has ever seen. No, that's, that's not what we do. Peterson said, men and women who are, as we say, into spirituality, frequently give this short shrift, preferring to rely on inspiration and, in, and intuition. Well, I feel the text means this. Well, I, I feel, I, I think the Holy Spirit told me the text means that. The problem with that is, is what you end up with is five people claiming to be full of the Holy Spirit and five people who claim that the Holy Spirit told them different things. Well, we have a problem there. We have a real problem with five people or ten people or two people saying the Holy Spirit said that verse means this. And I've heard people do this with texts. Well, God told me, and then they'll, they'll preach it. And it'll be a meaning that is completely off the rails from anything that I had ever heard about the text. And I'm going, time out. Anybody can say that God told me anything. And good people sometimes feel that they heard something from the voice of the Lord that wasn't actually God's voice. So Peterson says, men and women who are, as we say, into spirituality frequently give this short shrift preferring to rely on inspiration and intuition. But the long and broad consensus in the community of God's people has always insisted on a vigorous and meticulous interpretation of the text. So Peterson says, give long and close and learned attention to this text. All masters in spirituality were and are masters of interpreting the text. There's a lot going on here. We don't want to miss any of it. And here's my favorite line of Peterson's in this subject. He says, we don't want to sleepwalk through the text. We don't want to sleepwalk through the text. Has it ever occurred to you that you might have a book in your hands that actually has the power to change your life and you haven't done what's needed? to find that and you're sleepwalking through the text. Like people, the reason people go, some people go to bookstores to read to be entertained, but usually people, like I'll go, I went a while back and I wanted a book on finance for a specific area of finance advice. So I bought a book because I want that to change how I do things. I need more information. Has it occurred to all of us that the book that we have called the Bible, we are sleepwalking through the text. There is life transformation and answers right there in front of us, but we haven't done what Peterson says, that meticulous hard work to say, go into and really understand what the, the text reads. This applies to every single reader of the Bible. I don't care if a five-year-old reads the Bible or if a 50-year-old preaches the Bible. If we open up the Bible, we must approach it this way. It's not just for ministers preparing sermons. 
giving the text its full and proper attention is a discipline everyone who reads the scriptures must do. Too many preachers of the gospel do not give due diligence to the intentional reading of scripture. They make biblical exposition in the pulpit nearly impossible because it's all about how good I can make you feel, how motivated I can get you to get you to a place of an emotional high to where that tank will last until the next Sunday where you'll come back to the next Sunday and get another jolt. And, and I, I find nowhere in Scripture that that's the idea of what preaching is supposed to be. I don't find that that's what the Bible is supposed to be. We must all read the Bible with care and with a prayerful mind. I'm, I'm not negating, I'm not minimizing the importance of spirituality here. It, the Bible was written to Spirit-filled people. We need the light of the Holy Spirit to illuminate us. I'm, I'm not arguing that at all. There are people who read and study and the, the text of the Bible who are not Christians, who will never come away with what the main point of the Bible is, and that main point is Jesus Christ. I've talked before about how I was really aggravated years ago, the first seminary courses I took, when the seminary assigned in the Old Testament class an Old Testament survey book that was written by a man who was not a believer. Like, yeah, but he is the leading Old Testament scholar. Like, yeah, but he missed the point of the Old Testament. Like, this guy is going to know more facts and figures about the Old Testament than I ever will. He's going to understand the culture of the Old Testament more than I ever will. But I know what the point of the Old Testament is, and he doesn't. Like, there are also brilliant Old Testament people who under, are believers who see, because the whole point of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus Christ. And if you become a scholar and get a doctorate and write your doctoral dissertation on the Old Testament, and you miss the point that Jesus is the point of the Old Testament, you missed everything. You don't know anything about the Old Testament. It's all pointing to Jesus Christ. So with the Bible comes the sufficiency in revealing to us the truth concerning our salvation, our sanctification. The Bible does not reveal as many details as we often expect. Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. I'm probably halfway through what I wanted to talk about, but I'll stop there with that. But just to say the Bible does not tell us a lot of times the details that we want. When we say the Bible is sufficient... It's sufficient for all things related to our lives and about God and His redemptive purpose. Um, there is something that I need to know how to do um, in my car. I realized yesterday I have this car and I don't know how to do this. And I need to go find out how to do this thing because I can't figure it out on the buttons. Well, I'm not going to go to the Bible to figure that out about my car because my Bible's not going to tell me that. Uh, the car manual and the glove box will tell me that. So today I'm going to pull out the, the manual. So when we say the Bible is sufficient, we don't take it um, to the extreme and say, well, it's the only thing that we need. Now that's, I know that's an exaggerated example, but there are even other areas of life. Uh, so I, I would use the example of um, even in the counseling area. It doesn't mean that I wouldn't read other books on how to counsel somebody in a specific area. I'm saying that the Bible is sufficient for our relationship and our knowledge and our understanding of God. This is where, when people start to import other books, ideas, movies, um, you know, I look at the series Left Behind, the movie series with um, 
Kirk Cameron, I think Nicolas Cage did some, and there, there are these movies about the end times and about the rapture, and the problem is, is that that's where most of America gets their ideas about God is through a movie that was you know, supposedly made by people who are trying to follow this idea. And I'm like, if you want an understanding of the end times, please, please, please don't get it from the Left Behind series. Um, get it from your Bible. Like, go to your Bible, read it, understand it, and read it within the community of believers. We must understand, and I say this in closing, we must understand that all of this, the point of the Bible, is to point to Jesus Christ. If you want to know Christ, if you want to have a greater relationship with God, read your Bible. Open up, your, open up the text. See what the Bible has to say. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the words to come off the page, to read the Bible supernaturally with the light of the gospel shining through the text so that you may see and know him rightly and truly. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, every word in this book that we've talked about this morning is full of grace and truth. And I pray, Lord, that in a world that uh, has so many other options appealing to us in entertainment, in interactive media, that the Bible, a book that sits there with no scrolling, with no hyperlinks, with no video, um, just words on a page. But help us to see that those words are truth and they are life, and that they are so intertwined with the person of Jesus Christ, with the work of the Holy Spirit, and with the work that you're doing in our lives today. I pray, Lord, that as we sometimes, all of us, struggle to engage your work, that you would grant us, just supernaturally grant us an infusion, a gift of the Holy Spirit that is a desire and a love that draws us back to your word today. That your word is able to get a hold of our thinking, that it is able to sober us, that it is able to touch us in ways that nothing else can. Lord, of all things we pray, help us to be people of the word and people of the spirit. And we ask this today. In Jesus' name, amen.